0: why we love mindfulness. And, but I want to start with just a bow to the aspiration that brings us here and that, you know, that we're all practicing together. Um, A bow to the Buddha and the um, Prajnaparamita, is that who she is? Uh, Yes, she's very beautiful, especially like her breasts. Mm A bow to the Buddha and to the Prajnaparamita. I mean, it's refreshing to see them there, isn't it? Um, Nipples and everything. And especially to the Buddha, um, you've probably seen this mudra in, you know, if you haven't seen Buddha's pictures of them or in museums, there's there's this mudra, which I think of as. the Buddha okays all sentient beings you're okay what is it I'm okay you're okay we are okay about to that compassionate Buddha and uh, about to you who have already in just two days created a serene and beautiful Buddha field here it is so I know your internal atmosphere may not be like this, but (laughs) when you walk in to this hall, there is like a blanket of stillness, very rich and already deep feeling of peace and stillness. And it's created, I guess with your blood, sweat, and tears, it's created with this practice energy of all of us but especially you have done this together already. And there's uh, Mudita is one of the Brahma Viharas. We're practicing metta or loving kindness. During the metta sit, Mudita is joy. And and especially joy without really a personal reason for it, joy in the happiness of others. And I feel so much Mudita for you. There's an eight, century Sri Lankan text that it's a Mudita text and it says how wonderful you are in your being I'm glad you are here I take joy in your good fortune good fortune to be here may it continue and then also a bow to my Co-teachers, you probably know their names by now. Beth, the teacher, Wes, Spring, Matthew, Jack, and our trainee, Brent, and Max, who is home with his little ones, and especially to the whole Spirit Rock staff who make it all, with their hard work, make it all possible, and that all exists for you to support your practice. of amazing. That's why I take joy in your good fortune to be here. And we do this, well, to offer refuge and respite um, from our chaotic and stressful world, (laughs) but primarily to, most important, because we really trust, all of us, that those who practice sincere meditation in retreat, like this, are going to have a um, benevolent, beneficial effect on the world. And uh, the Buddha said if a person goes in search of a silent and tranquil place and applies the practice, their qualities will without doubt become infinite means they're good qualities, will become infinite. Someone who directs themselves in such a direction will gather the power to benefit countless beings and lead them to happiness. That's you. One of my favorite stories about the Buddha was how he worked with a young man who was probably developmentally delayed. In the story he's called the dullard, which is a little hard, but um, his mind was (coughs) dull and he had a hard time learning. And what made it worse, as often happens, is he had an older brother who was super smart. And the older brother became a monk and the younger brother, of course, looking up to his older brother, also ordained And the older brother knew that his younger brother, you know, wasn't, that he had trouble um, at least learning differences. So he gave him just a four-line verse to practice with. Just remember these four lines, that's all. But the poor younger brother, every time he would memorize one line, if he memorized the next line would like push the first line out of his mind so he could never get more than one line at a time. And his brother lost patience and just said, you know what, I think you're, it's hopeless. You probably should leave um, the sangha and give up your robes. So the younger brother, you can imagine, he was really dejected. He felt terrible. And he figured, okay, there's no hope. I just have to do that. So he was kind of trudging away. But the Buddha, with his all-seeing, compassion eye, knew and sensed what was going on. Maybe he saw him. It probably wouldn't have been that hard to guess, watching somebody trudge away. And, um, but the story is that he knew just psychically and he called him back and he said gave he said i'm going to give you a special practice just for you and the practice was to he gave him a white handkerchief nice and clean handkerchief and he said i want you to sit in the sun and all you have to do is rub this handkerchief on your hand that's your whole practice now this he could do. So he sat and did it, and he rubbed, and he rubbed, and he rubbed, and you can imagine, sweaty, right? And The day goes on, and you know what happens if you, like, really, really rub your skin. You get these kind of dark-looking rolls of something, probably dirt, and so he's rubbing and rubbing, and the, he notices that the handkerchief is getting dirty, really dirty. And suddenly he he sees things, he has insights, he sees, oh, that which was pristine and white before is now grimy. Things are impermanent, even though I just all I did was this, it changed. He saw that. And then he also realized this grime is coming from me. It's not. I mean, he didn't rub it on the ground or anything, right? (laughs) He just was rubbing it on his hand. And he understood, he actually understood that this was the way he saw the metaphor, that by this continuous willingness Mm -hmm. to just apply the method, as simple as it was, um all kinds of stuff was sort of emerging from him. And he saw that it was really his own um, what would you call them? His own obstacles, his own, well they say in the text, impurities. That this was a process of purification, of ridding himself of his whatever self-hatred, disappointment, um, feelings of despair and hopelessness, because he felt peaceful. And he talked with the Buddha, and of course <laughs> he became fully enlightened through the simple practice. And he had the confidence there was actually a dinner from which he had been excluded. And the Buddha saw that he was excluded and sent, guess who, his brother to go get him, who had excluded him. and. Um, and the younger brother had the confidence to give a beautiful Dharma talk to all the monks who had come to receive this meal at one of the um, you know, supporters of the community at their house. And the Buddha said, One who is diligent and steadfast in their practice will be free. And that is all of you, because here you are. It's inevitable. Why is it inevitable? Because it's who we actually most truly are. That we can have insight, understand things, um, do the practice, and be clear. So last night we heard about gardening as a metaphor for this work of cultivating clarity and kindness, mindfulness, and metta. Here we are, all of us. Well, I wasn't in the hall so much today, but I go through my own hardest practice, actually, is preparing a talk. I'm always happy when I'm up here with you. But ahead of time, mm mm-mm, not happy. So here we all are, just digging around in the soil of our lives, (laughs) taking care of this particular garden plot of consciousness, Um, that we call ourselves and that we extend to our world, this uh, spot of consciousness that's been given to us for tending and watering and weeding. And maybe most important of all, trusting that the mind and heart know how to do this. It doesn't feel like that, but it is like that. The mind and heart know how to, when watered with attention, with kindness, with mindfulness, how to unfurl and reveal themselves to us, Uh, and how to blossom even in the midst of suffering. So I want to just talk about why we love mindfulness and some ways to work with the breath some just simple, practical things. We love mindfulness because it includes everything that's hard about our lives. Everything is included. It helps us see the four truths of this practice that are called noble. They're called noble because they're they're actually four ways of acting, and being that make us worthy of being called noble. Oh, noble sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. Because nothing is too crazy, too tragic, too weird, too scary, too sad, too upsetting, too overwhelming, too huge for mindfulness. Mindfulness. Mindfulness can include and embrace it all. And this is the first task, the first of those truths, to recognize and acknowledge how hard life is sometimes and how hard we live. And we come to see that actually our suffering I mean, somebody said today, I cannot believe how many of my thoughts are completely egocentric. Completely. It's stunning. Have you noticed that? I mean, who is the most important star of all, right, all the stories? And so we start to see that all our suffering is due to reacting to reality, wanting it to be more or different, certainly better than it is. And that the painful emotions come from the way that we actually disconnect from reality. In order to think this way, we disconnect and approach our lives this way. And But the second task is to see that, to see how how our reactions to the situation at hand, whatever they are, uh, our fear, our recoil, our judgment, or grabbiness, how we can just actually let them be. Which is another way of saying let them go. But let them go sounds more like doing, like we could push them away or force them to go away. And it isn't like that. It would be great if it worked like that, but it doesn't. So letting them be just letting them be so in this openness of heart and mind that is growing, not just day by day, but hour by hour as you practice. And then we, we start to see the etiology, the origin of just exactly how we get our knickers in a twist over and over again. And, as, and, and knowing that, it's actually helpful. It brings some relief. And uh, we can start to see that... Um, can I say the title of your new book? That as Wes's new book is entitled, which is coming out in March, we are not our fault. We start to see that. And we start to know some moments that are just a little more peaceful, right? Just a little more peaceful, where our patterns can actually stop running us, at least for a little while. And in that stopping, there's some stillness and calm, where we can see things just a little more clearly uh, with some perspective. And that's, that's the third task. Now the fourth one is actually what all of our teaching is about. And, and you know, how to live a wise and loving and ethical life, and um, the Eightfold Path. And maybe I'll talk about that another time. So mindfulness is like a mirror. It's like that little, um, where is it from here? Probably there that pretty little Buddha pond, that little reflecting pool, which is reflecting what? The blue sky, the passing clouds, the half moon, the starlight. It's reflecting what is there, what is here. And so our mindfulness is this kind of mirror, only the mirror is awake, (laughs) it's wide awake and the water is actually alive, that which is being reflected. It's, it's our own consciousness. It's our own consciousness reflecting ourselves and this, well, this process of being alive that we call ourselves. And we love this mindfulness mirror because what is reflected in it is not judgmental. It's really accepting and kind of unflappable. Even when we are very flapped in whatever way we are, the awareness of that agitation is not agitated. And maybe that's just a sliver of what's going on. But that sliver is the key to freedom. It's really important. I think of mindfulness as a loving grandparent. You know, just embodying, acceptance, tolerance, understanding. Kind of like, I saw this beautiful photograph that Ed Brown took of Kuan Yin, the embodiment. I love the Buddhist cosmology because all the figures are metaphors for states of mind. They're just depictions of states of mind and heart. And Kuan Yin is the um, depiction of compassion. So he ha- he made this beautiful photograph of Kuan Yin, and it said, "She's seen it all, and she's still smiling." Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of attitude of the grandparent. Dogen, Zenji, and his instructions to the cook. The cook in a Zen monastery. That's a it's a really important position. It's like right up there with the Zen master. Um, He teaches how enlightenment is actualized through mindfulness, through loving awareness in our daily activity. In fact, he says, practice is enlightenment. This is it, what you're doing right now. This is it. This is the contents of your waking up. So, he presents three qualities of mind that define a mature practitioner, somebody who could be the Tenzo, the cook. He says a joyful mind, a magnanimous mind, and a parental mind. I think for magnanimous, we could say forgiving and generous, and for parental, it might be more accurate to say grandparental mind. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I was not that kind of parent. As a parent, you know, we worry, we, we're anxious about who our children are and who they are. Guess what? It does become all about us, doesn't it? It's just, and we have to socialize them, and we have to balance love and limits, and anyway, grandparents don't have to do any of that. Um, so the quality of this the parental mind, what Dogen meant was just that care and attentiveness that parents offer to their children, their, excuse me, devotion to their children. But what's interesting is he said, this is how everything should be approached. This is how to approach your work meditation, how you are in your room when you use something, you know, your toothbrush or something. He says... When you handle water, food, or anything else, have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child or a grandparent with their child. Maybe for this you have to have the parent's attitude, really watching how you're doing it and really caring. So we grandparents can just love them and appreciate them. It's, and mindfulness is like this. It's really very free. When she was little, my granddaughter, Allie, told her mother once. They, my grandkids call me Nini. Uh, she said, Nini likes everything about me, even my poo-poo. <laughs> I mean, isn't it great to have someone who feels that way about you? (laughs) Even your (laughs) poo-poo? I mean, let's take it metaphorically. Um, We love mindfulness because it helps us step back from just being so caught. Uh, Dogen teaches a practice that I've been teaching a lot recently, It's my practice, it's what I've been doing, so we can do it together. So just for a moment, you don't have to get in any special posture, but just meditate for a moment. Instead of looking at me, look at you. And now, however you are sitting, just just notice first how you feel right now, and then move your body back, maybe just a half an inch, maybe an inch, if there's room, so you're literally moving back into a posture of receptivity, and just notice how that feels. So instead of leaning forward, tipping toward the next experience, we're stepping back. Instead of looking for something, we're allowing experience to come to us. Allowing the breath to breathe us. You can open your eyes. Did you notice any difference? I actually feel... Like, you, like, see how I'm leaning out toward you, right? And we do that. All our attention kind of flies out our eyes, and we go toward things. I mean, unless we're aversive to them, and then we recoil or get aggressive with them. But usually it's munutu. We're just looking out our eyes. But when I step back, and when I just soften my gaze so I'm not looking at you, but I can see you. It's more panoramic. (sighs) Something relaxes. So you can play with that and see if it has that effect for you. Um, He said that (coughs) when this self, us, goes forward toward the myriad things of this world, you know, whatever it might be that we are interested in or wanting to make happen, this is delusion. But when self steps back and the myriad things are allowed, when the moment is simply received, when things can come forward and Show themselves to us when it's it's like listening instead of talking. Uh, that's enlightenment, that's awakening. So it's definitely worth exploring and it reminds me of what teacher um, when he teaches the um, undoing because we're sort of always overdoing it, we're trying we want to make things happen right when he was saying like take away 30 percent of that effort and instead just you know let it be mindfulness let it be awareness preferably loving but just awareness is good too it's enough and so it's 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 the same thing and then today there was that incredible instruction um I think we were holding our arms like this, like this maybe. And then T. just said, "Well, you know, when your arms get tired and your elbows start to feel really heavy, like instead of trying to bring more strength and, you know, lift them up, he said, he said try and extend not strength but softness. Well, they're not tired right now, but I was doing it, and I extended softness. And see? They, they lifted they lift up. I didn't do it, I swear. They, it just <laughs> lifted up. And that's what he was saying. It's see how that voice, how it uplifts the gesture. But again, this too can be a practice instruction, a metaphor for what we do with our minds. You know, instead of trying to muscle through, what if we just extended that grandparently softness and just see how that might buoy or uplift the heart. Last night, Jack touched on the practice of noting or labeling. And... I just want to emphasize how helpful that can be when you're in any kind of crunch. Um, We know that noting practice, I think it was David Cresswell, the experiment, that um, about the, he's trying to understand the mechanism. We know the stress buffering effects of mindfulness and metta, right? But he wanted to understand how does it work? What is the mechanism for this? Um, shift that we can experience and what he discovered was enhanced prefrontal prefrontal cortical regulation of affect through labeling of negative affective stimuli in other words noting our difficult emotions painful feelings it actually calms the amygdala it enhances this activity of awareness. Um, And we knew this, of course, but we rely on science, I mean as meditators we knew this, but we rely on science to prove what we already knew because it's fun to see that. (laughs) It's very affirming. It feels great. It's like, oh, science says it's true. We knew it. But anyway, it's still, right? We always want that little bit of external reassurance, don't we? Um, I mean, we know it because we know that the mindful awareness of being stressed out, that piece is not stressed out. Or I was telling our small group, um, I was in a a long, fairly difficult retreat um, where you had to note, 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 intricately and constantly and with um, some Burmese Sayadaws. And it was, anyway, my brain got a little bit uh, lost doing it all the time. And so I went to the Sayadaw, the teacher, and I said, I'm just really lost. And, of course, what they usually say is, did you note it? (laughs) Now, you might think that's a really, you know, like standard, basically unhelpful answer, but it isn't, because the minute he said, did you note it, it was like a kind of Alice in Wonderland, duh, moment where I realized, oh, aware of being lost is not being lost anymore. Right? It's that simple, you guys. <laughs> it really is. You don't need you know, your um, GPS. We have one. It's called Noting Practice. So take pain in the body. That's maybe a good example for today. Uh, we say, I'm in pain. My knee hurts. My back hurts. I have a bad hip. It's killing me. I mean, this is the kind of thing we say to ourselves. And it becomes unbearable. Because when we sit like this, immobile, in silence, all the knots and tensions that have accumulated in the body, they become amplified. And the pain can feel overwhelming. And so... We can use mindfulness to notice a sensation as a sensation, but here's how the noting works. It has to actually be accurately attuned to what's happening. So you can't, it's not like affirmations where you can be in pain and miserable and say, I'm really happy today. I'm really happy today. It doesn't make you happy, necessarily. It never did make me happy anyway, but we used to try those um, in the 70s. But um, <laughs> But when we note, instead of just, oh pain, pain, this big monolithic thing, pain, but if we actually take the time to explore, then we get to see what aching, stabbing, burning, throbbing, tightness. I mean, whatever the sensations may be, but naming them enhances the prefrontal cortical regulation of affect. That means it helps us regulate our feeling of it being unbearable. It sort of down calms that down. And then what's even better is we're in direct contact with what's happening. It's not mediated by our thoughts about it anymore, which are always hard to bear. And as we note each sensation, stabbing, pulling, um, aching, burning, tearing, etc., as we know and name each sensation, we can start to see there's subtle shifts and changes. And It's actually not this solid, monolithic, unbearable thing called pain. It's actually a flow of experience. Experiences arising and passing away in the body, continuously, moment by moment, like everything else, P.S. And we can step back and watch the whole show, creating space around the sensation, around our reaction to it. All of it. Um, and that, that uh, is our work here, to know this continuously unfolding display, the landscape of our life, of our inner world. So please don't get um, frustrated or depressed or convinced that you're a bad meditator just because you can't control your mind. This is how the thinking mind works. This is an insight you're having. This is insight meditation. And if you've discovered that you can't control your mind, that's actually the first insight. Uh, The thinking mind thrives by generating one thought after another, continuously. And the Tibetans say that the mind keeps churning out these thoughts, one after another, continuously. I mean, we know it does it until we die, but they say it keeps going after we die, too. So really, we need to learn to meditate. Because it's one thing to be going through this until we die, but we sort of think of death as, you know, <laughs> some release. <laughs> what do they say? Rest in peace. I think we have to learn how to rest in peace here, so we can rest in peace when we die. Anyway, this is why you're meditating and this is how the mind works. And Well, actually you're discovering how you work. This is how we work. And um, we're discovering the difference between knowing a thought, being aware and mindful of having a certain thought, and believing that thought, like Jack was saying last night. And believing And identifying with our thoughts, getting so uh, involved and entangled with them, but not the good kind of entangled that they can do in physics. That's what stands between us and um, awakening to a clear mind and heart. So see if you can be Fascinated by what's happening, even if it's these like, tight little circles of obsessive thinking. Um, they call it samsara. It's like a merry go round, except Achan Amro calls it the sorry go round <laughs> instead of the merry, ma- because it's not very merry uh, when you're in it. Um, so be curious about how this is happening, and, and it doesn't matter. This is the other great thing about mindfulness and why we love it so much. It does not matter whether the content of what you're thinking is sublime or ridiculous. It does not matter. Um, In fact, whether the content of your thinking is good news or bad news to your ego, the bad news is the best kind. Believe me, the bad news is the best. That's where the pay dirt is. So when you are seeing some horrible truth about yourself, rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Why would you rejoice? Because it's not hidden anymore. You can see it and know it. Because that which is outside of awareness actually controls us. Because we don't see it. So just to see clearly and honestly all of who we are is a great freedom. It's a great freedom. So, when we can't concentrate at all, we just have to forgive ourselves and keep trying. This, my first teacher, De Sansenin, a Korean Zen master, he used to talk to us all the time about try mind. And he would say, You fall down a hundred times, but you get up 101 times. And that was his description of practice. We have to make an effort, but can we extend it? With gentleness and softness instead of strength and force um, so we have a little more time and I want to just talk about some practical ways to like work with the breath and see how far we can get um, The classical ways are to notice, I, I have, I, I mean, I'm saying these things to you, but they didn't work for me. But maybe they'll work for you. <laughs> but this is what the Buddha said. Um, concentrate on the lengths of the breath taken. Is it a long, deep breath? Is it a short breath? Is it neither long nor short? Oh, this one I like. Concentrate on the warm and cool sensations in the nostrils. The coolness of the inhalation. The warmth of the exhalation. Concentrate on the rise and fall of the belly approximately three finger widths below the navel. That's actually a nice one too. I take it back. They have helped me. Um, just the one that didn't is that long and short breath one, but maybe it will help you. So We love mindfulness because it knows how to see and let us be, not trying to control and fix and change what's here. Because it looks deeply, it can have tenderness. And this word apamada. I love this word. It means care, but it also means the absence of insanity. And when we're being mindful, we're actually not that insane, which is also very, very relieving. We get less insane. Um... So as you're standing, and walking, and doing qigong, and sitting, and doing your work meditation, with the same care as with you would raise your own child, as you're doing all these things here, we deepen our sense of gathering wholeness of our being. And we're really gathering in all the um, dis- disowned bits of ourselves. And, gathering them into awareness and, and feeling. As we feel more integrated and in all of a piece, we feel happier. And we can start to see the patterns. Um, as using the body and the breath as an anchor, especially in walking around, the body is really more useful. The breath is more elusive when we're walking around doing things. Um, But to just start to see our patterns of how we are, our habitual patterns. And again, seeing them, it just helps us because then we have some choice about whether we want them to be entirely in charge of us or not. Um, Oh, another way with the breath. This is simple, but I like this one, and you might too. Just notice the beginning, the middle, and the end of each breath. So you notice, you're actually studying the birth and death of experience. How a breath is born, lives and has its being, and passes away. Another way is to notice that there's a little pause in between the breaths. You've probably noticed this already. And sometimes you can catch it, sometimes you can't. But when you can notice it, that pause is a moment of stillness, complete stillness, just for that just for that little time. And when you notice the pause, particularly at the end of the out-breath, for some reason, it's a, probably because the out-breath just sort of dissolves into space. And probably our organism knows that that's how it will be when, we, when it's our last breath. It will, our life will end on the out-breath. So at the end of the out-breath is where the mind usually just takes off. You know, mindfulness goes on a holiday, goes into its, what did Matthew call it? The cocoon of unconsciousness. It happens at the end of that out breath. So if you can stay with the end, with that pause until the next breath, it really helps stay present. And the last way that I want to tell you about is through a Zen story about, again, one of my favorite ones, about a Zen master named Zui Gan. And he was a Zen master. That meant he really knew how to practice. He devotes, He devoted his life to it. He lived in the monastery. He worked silently. And while he was working, the way that he would stay mindful is he would call to himself. And he would say, he would ask, he'd say, Sweet Gone? And then he'd answer himself, Yes? And then he'd say, Are you here? And then he'd answer himself, Yes? Now, see, you can think, Oh, that's a dualistic practice. But what he was doing was harnessing the capacity that we have to witness and be aware of ourselves and using it to be present. But then he would answer, so, so, you know, you can, Trudy, yes. Are you here? Yes. Yes, definitely. But then he would say, do not be deceived by others. That's, that's the koan piece, because what does that mean? Do not, it seems like a non sequitur, do not be deceived by others. But that was him giving himself a little dharmet, a little piece of dharma advice to remind himself. Now, if it was a Zen retreat, I wouldn't explain it, but it's a Vipassana retreat, <laughs> so I can unpack it completely for you <laughs> and tell you all about it so you don't have to have the direct experience of realizing it for yourself. Um, <laughs> you can have that, too. But I'll just tell you a little about it so you can sum of each the middle way. Um, <laughs> so that line is puzzling and whenever there's a puzzling line that doesn't make sense, it kind of catapults the mind into a new dimension where we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what it means. We don't know what he means. But when he's saying, don't be deceived by others, he's referring to seeing what arises in the mind when we take things as an object. And then we identify with me over here, seeing the object, you over there, out there, you out there. And it's a big separation. And he's saying, just see whatever occurs, appears in your consciousness. It's just that, an arising in your consciousness. You are arisings in my consciousness. Don't be deceived into making every single thing that you think solid and real. Making it be a story about who you are. I must be a creep because I'm having these creepy thoughts. Or whatever it is. It's not. It's just the arising of some thoughts that seem creepy. So that was his practice. You can do it. Call to yourself whatever you, each of you, your name. Trudy. Yes. Are you awake? Definitely yes. Do not be deceived by others. Don't make your experience into something other, separate, distant, hopefully far away from you. See if you can come close to experience, even experience that you'd rather be far away from, especially experience that you'd rather be far away from, actually. See if you can come close and see how close can you come, how intimate can you be with what's arising in you as you in this particular moment of your life. That was Sweet Gan's way of practicing, and you can do this. You call to yourself like a mindfulness bell. So I'm just going to close with another Zen exchange because it's so compassionate. I love it. Um, and, you know, if you're finding this hard, this practice and this retreat, There's nothing wrong with you. It is. It actually is. I mean, we're not supposed to make hard, easy, just have the experience without evaluating it. But um, still, we do. So if you're finding it hard, you're like this monk who asked his Zen teacher, why do we stumble on level ground? Why? The ground here is pretty level. I mean, I know there's a big hill, but we're fed. The hill is not bumpy. It's paved. We're not supposed to go off, you know, the path. Um, I mean, the road. The bells tell us what to do and when to do it. And a schedule tells us there's not even really that much to do, truth be told. And yet we stumble and get lost, even when we're completely cared for and fed and supported here. So the monk, you know, he's in the monastery and it's the situation like we have practicing together and he's asking, why, why does this happen? And his teacher answers, it's only because the heart runs wild. I love that only, (laughs) it's only because the heart runs wild. In other words, don't worry about it. This is what we're like. This is how we are. And there it is, the magnanimous, generous, forgiving grandparent mind response. Today one person talked about putting her boredom in her lap and just cradling it like her child. So I want to end with the very best news about meditation, which is that when we're here meditating together, nobody can see you. You know, whatever you are like, um, I mean, actually, everyone can see you, but here's what they see when they see you. (laughs) Or maybe... But peaceful, right? That's what they see when they see you. Nobody knows what lustful sexual fantasy you're entwined in. Nobody knows, I mean, what you're up to. Nobody knows what's going on in there, because you look like this. (laughs) And that's actually a statement of trust in the practice. Because it's the closest thing to the truth. No matter what's going on in there, the fact that you're sitting like this, is true. You are. You're sitting still. You're here. No matter what's going on inside, you are sitting calmly and quietly. And that's the truth. That's the ultimate truth. So whatever comes up for you, whatever comes from your life, whatever comes from the circumstances of retreat, Whatever comes up in your work meditation with your roommate, whatever suffering or joy arises for you, whether you feel like you can do the practice well or not, whether it's a good day or not, whether you feel like you should really be here and belong here or not, whether you're wishing you were back home already or you could just have one good night's sleep or wishing that the bell would ring (laughs) now (laughs) so you could stand up and your legs will stop hurting. All these things arise and pass away like fantasies and dreams. And somehow in the midst of this, in the midst of this landscape of your life, you may find, you will find some peace and freedom and some compassion and willingness to help others. The love of the Dharma has already arisen so deeply in you that you find yourself here, after all. You did choose to come. And that love of the Dharma will carry you through all the circumstances of this retreat and actually of your life, uh, no matter what, really and truly, no matter what. So please enjoy the rising, the falling, the heaven, the hell of it, and everything in between. Because this is a chance for us to appreciate, to really appreciate our lives, and to enter the heart of our life. So thank you for your listening, your kind listening. So beautiful to speak into this listening. Thank you, thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. This is a period of walking meditation. Enjoy your walking as a reflecting pool this beautiful evening. And come back to sit again.